Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. A science story, huh? It was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, welcome to the Story Clatter, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Misha Gajewski, and this week, our stories explore the often complex relationship we have with our bodies and how we perceive them. I personally have a love-hate relationship with my body, pretty much like any woman in North America who grew up looking at fashion magazines in the 90s, but the science behind our personal mental representation of ourselves is fascinating. While some of it has to do with your general physical appearance, aka body size and shape, it actually goes so much deeper than that. How you see yourself doesn't always necessarily have any relation to how you actually look. Research has found that personal body image is subject to all kinds of distortions. Things like the attitudes of your parents, your emotions, and sociocultural context all play a role in how you see yourself in the mirror. In today's episode, both our storytellers explore their own relationships with their body image. Our first story is from Connie Henderson. It was performed in July 2022 at the Jewel Box Theater in Seattle. The theme that night was healing. I was born into a family of voluptuous women. Not just curvy women, I mean, they were like fertility goddesses. They had big wide hips and narrow waists and beautiful breasts. My mom, my grandmas, all my aunts were built like that, and we all assumed that I would be too. When I hit the point that puberty typically kicks in, there was nothing on the horizon. And they said, it's okay, honey, you're, you'll be okay, you're just a late bloomer. So we waited, and we waited. And when I was 18 years old, I was graduating from high school, I was four foot 10, and I weighed 85 pounds. We had to admit, I was not gonna bloom. I was not gonna be like my mom. Instead, I was gonna take after my dad. Not my dad's side of the family, I literally was built just like my dad. My mom was really disappointed, obviously so. But I was actually okay with it because it was the 70s. And flat was in. The, we had 
uh, Peggy Lipton in The Mod Squad, Ally McGraw in Love Story. And my personal favorite was Twiggy. I cut off all my hair in a short little pixie cut, put on way too much eye makeup, and I was sure that I was a dead ringer for her. But then everything changed in the 80s. Two words, Baywatch. <laughs> Everybody wanted to either be Pamela Anderson or do Pamela Anderson. And all my friends started getting implants. They'd walk into parties and throw their shirts open and say, look what I got. It was like new tennis shoes or something. Um, and the man I was married to at the time took one look and said, we need to get some of those. Well, I was, I was crushed because it took me right back to that little girl who never felt like she was enough. But I was also tempted. I mean, I really thought about it. They, they were beautiful. There was no getting around it, and all the guys were staring at them. But I, you know, I thought about it and thought about it, and in the end, I decided I, I just didn't want artificial breasts. I mean, they, they, were, they were gorgeous, but they weren't real. So I just consoled myself with the idea that my A cups were gonna stay perky for decades, <laughs> and I got on with my life. And then one day, years later, I, I noticed a lump in my left breast. I went to my doctor and he said, it's nothing to worry about. But I did not stop worrying. He was right, I'd always had fibrocystic breasts, but this lump just felt different. And for six months, I went back and he wouldn't order a mammogram. He said, you're just being paranoid. It's not medically necessary and your insurance won't pay for it. Well, I, I lived in a small town at the time and I, I just walked into the radiologist's office and told him what was going on, and I wrote a check for a mammogram so I could confirm that this lump was nothing to worry about. Well, after the mammogram came an ultrasound and then a biopsy, and then I got a call telling me that I had breast cancer. And I, I was just in shock. I kept saying, this cannot be happening. I can't have breast cancer. I don't even have breasts. <laughs> but it, you know, it, anytime you get a diagnosis like that, it takes on a life of its own. And you find yourself in a whirlwind of medical appointments. The first surgeon I went to was a neighbor of mine. And she recommended aggressive chemotherapy, radiation, and double mastectomies. She said, there's no reason to do reconstruction because at our age, we don't need breasts. We were 50. And by this time, I was single and in a relationship with a great guy, Paul. And I, I was not ready to accept what she was telling me. She said, you just need, need time to get used to the idea. Call me when you're ready to schedule the surgeries. And she handed me a basket with a big pink bow on it and walked me out the door. So as I sat in my car alone, trying to get up the nerve to call Paul and give him the bad news, um, I started going through this basket. 
And there was a pink teddy bear and pink fuzzy slippers, chamomile tea. And in the bottom, I came to a brochure of wigs and scarves. And that was when it hit me. I was terrified. Um, but Paul was thinking a lot more clearly than I was at this point. We decided we needed to get a second opinion. And the second surgeon I talked to was a lot more reassuring. She said, you're really lucky. You're small-breasted. You found it early. We probably will not have to do that. And the plan that evolved was we would go into the surgery, and she would check my lymph nodes on the left side. If they were negative, she would do a lumpectomy. I'd follow up with radiation, and everything would be fine. If they were positive, though, that meant the cancer had spread. If that is what happened, she would do bilateral mastectomies, skin-saving mastectomies, they call them, and go straight to reconstruction. And after all that was done, I'd need a lot more treatment. So to get ready for the second possibility, I had some decisions to make. And they gave me a catalog to go shopping for my new potential breasts. <laughs> and as Paul and I are looking through this catalog, a, a few things started to become clear. The first is I was not going to come out of this looking the same because they don't make double A cup implants. <laughs> The second is Paul may not have been entirely true when he told me he was an ass man. <laughs> and the third is I apparently had never given up the idea of having big breasts. Because we're looking through this catalog at before and after pictures of bigger and bigger sizes. And in the beginning, it was like, oh, those are nice. And pretty soon it was, wow. And then we got to, holy cow. <laughs> and we were like getting into it. We, I started seeing things like, go big or go home. <laughs> and we booked a trip to Mexico to a topless resort under the ruse that we were taking the girls on what might be their last vacation. <laughs> In reality, we thought that a topless resort would be a really good place to do field research on fake boobs. <laughs> And we were right. <laughs> we, we spent a week laying on the beach, hiding behind our sunglasses, staring at women's breasts. And we tried to be kind of subtle about it. Paul, Paul would lean over and say things like, incoming at 9 o'clock. <laughs> and then we'd do like thumbs up, thumbs down. Sometimes his thumbs went way up. And by the end of the week, I had it all figured out. I had my heart set on sloped saline implants in a size that would generously fill a D-cup bra. <laughs> and I was going to have them add nipples. Um, they just gather up the skin, and you can get a tattoo, any size, any color, because I thought maybe someone would think they were real. I don't know. Um, I, I was excited. And I hadn't told my mom about the diagnosis. I didn't want her to worry until I knew what I was dealing with. Um, and I, you know, as, I, as I'm making these plans, all I can think is, my mom is going to be so surprised. 
But I, when I went to my pre-op appointment and told the surgeon the, my plan, she stepped back, looked me up and down, and said, totally deadpan, you don't have enough epi epidermal tissue for implants that size. <laughs> she said, sometimes we can do transplants from the abdomen or the buttocks, but I was still built like my dad. And she said, you don't give us anything to work with. <laughs> so we, we scaled back to what they call a big B, um, which was still, I mean, drastically bigger than I ever thought I'd be in my life. The morning of the surgery, my anxiety was just through the roof. I didn't know if I was afraid or excited. I knew when I woke up, I would either have a small bandage and a really good prognosis, or I'd have these big, beautiful breasts and a rough road ahead treating the cancer that had spread. And as they put me under, I seriously didn't know what I was hoping for. Um, but I, I don't have to tell you, I woke up looking exactly like I always looked. And I, I was so relieved. The moment of truth came when they brought Paul back to see me and there wasn't a hint of disappointment on his face. That's when I knew he was a keeper. <laughs> but I'm really aware that I was, I was a lucky. I was one of the lucky ones. I have friends whose diagnosis did not come in time. And there isn't a day that I'm not grateful for the way I'm built. Yay. Thanks, Dad. That was Connie Henderson. Connie Henderson lives in Vancouver, Washington, where she practices law with her husband, Paul, and son, Jordan. Okay, before we continue with today's episode, a couple of reminders. While we don't have any more shows for you this year, we'll be back in all your favorite cities in 2023. Coming up in January, we'll be back in Toronto, St. Louis, and New York City. You can check out storyclatter.org slash shows for tickets. And as always, if you enter promo code science story at checkout, you'll get 10% off your ticket. That's S-C-I-N-C-E story, all one word, for a 10% discount. We also have a special online show with the World Health Organization, Completamente en Español. Again, that's storycollider.org slash shows for more info. If you'd like to learn more about how to tell a science story, check out storycollider.org slash education. We offer private workshops, both online and in person for groups, and we offer public courses for individuals online as well. Also, for more updates and cool behind-the-story pictures and other awesome content, you should follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. Find us at Story Collider. And finally, if you're a fan of this podcast and if you, like us, believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science, to change your understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, please consider donating to the Story Collider at storycollider.org donate. Also, if you're tired of listening to ads on the podcast, you can sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash thestorycollider. 
Our Patreon supporters receive an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as occasional bonus episodes and other gifts. We're so grateful to everyone who helps make our work possible. Our second story is from Drew Tisha. It was recorded in London, England at the Aces and Eights Saloon Bar in November this year. The theme that night was the unexpected. I'm 10 years old and I've gone to the local public pool with the rest of my schoolmates and we're going to learn swimming. So we're learning strokes like backstroke, breaststroke, the one with the frog legs and more. And we're there at the pool, at the edge of the pool, and my hair, which is usually long past my waist, is bundled up into a swimming cap. And I've got this patterned swimming costume on, and the pool is cool and blue, and it smells of chlorine. And I know that when I shrug my towel off, I'm going to get cold, because my Kenyan Indian park can only deal with the body temperature rather than the English element. But it is what it is. So I'm standing there, edge of the pool... It's a boy standing next to me, I know. Um, and he's average, Caucasian. I can't remember his name. He's an alleged nose picker. You know the drill. <laughs> he does his thing. I'll do mine. It's all good. Anyway, he turns around and he looks at me. And then, in as loud as a voice as a 10-year-old can have, he says, Druthi... You're really hairy. Uh, 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 There's no time to think. The teacher blows the whistle and we all have to jump in. And rather than focus on the stroke like everybody else, I'm like, what the... Why am I so much hairier than everybody else in this class, including the boys? And I look over at him and he's all right. He's just having a bit of fun. He doesn't care. But I do. But then we're back in the changing rooms and I'm casting these furtive glances at these, you know, dark emerging hairs that are all on my body. And I'm wondering, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, I don't want to go back home and tell my family. I just want to hide. But we live in a small, tiny house and there's nowhere to hide. So I do the next best thing and I go upstairs and I flop on my mattress and I look over at my bookshelf and I pick up the first book that comes to hand and it's White Fang by Jack London. Now this is a coming of age story for a high content wolf dog. (laughs) And I'd been given this book two years previously and I'd fallen in love with it. But this time there was something different. I just couldn't put it down. I took it downstairs to dinner I sneaked it back upstairs past my mum and I stayed up all night using the streetlight outside my box room bedroom window uh, to devour page after page after page. I identify with that wolf dog, that high content wolf dog. He's an outsider. So am I. I've been brought up in the Jain faith, which there's not many of us around anyway in the world. I'm vegetarian, been born vegetarian. And, you know, it's way before it's fashionable. And... I'm brown in a very white-centric world, so I already feel quite different. And I read this book, and I think, oh, that white fan, he knows what to do. In a very cruel human world, white fan uses his cunning, he uses his smarts 
in order to navigate what's going on. I'm going to be like White Fang. I am going to be known as the girl who reads rather than the girl with a hairy body. It's all good. And then it's that moment, though, in the pool where I've clearly realised I'm objectified. I read that word. It's good. Um, <laughs> and I then move from primary school to secondary school. I move from wearing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle jeans and shorts to MC Hammer baggy trousers and leggings. They go with my uniform of baggy T-shirts. And whenever I'm wearing Indian clothes, which can be super, super bling, luckily, it's not too revealing. So all that hair, it remains hidden. But I spend a lot of my teens wandering around my part of London looking for a cheap deal at the Indian beauty shops that they have, trying to get my eyebrows threaded, my upper lip waxed, my arm hairs removed somehow, my leg hairs, whatever can be removed, removed. But I'm not alone in this. It seems like every single people in my girls' school feel duty-bound to be smooth. I find it really weird because some of them don't have any hair at all, it seems. But there you go. But I seem to have the most resilient hair in the world. Like, mother nature and genetics and puberty just go wild. So, whereas it seems like everybody else seems to glow up with this soft, fine fuzz known as vellus, I get dark, wiry, terminal hairs everywhere. And it's really, really frustrating. Like... Waxing, shaving, IPL, laser, sugaring, this thing that you do with sandpapery thing mitts, I don't understand. It doesn't matter what I do, it comes back. It's bloody annoying, especially when I keep accidentally cutting myself. And there comes a point, fast forward a few years, I'm in my 20s, uh, finally got a job, <laughs> doesn't pay very well, but... I spend quite a lot of the money that I do have on trying to remove hair and the latest bout of laser has failed again. And it's not fair, my friends don't have to do this and to be perfectly frank, I'm having a bit of a pity party, being miserable and I'm back at home, back in that same box room bedroom. Things have changed, it's purple rather than blue now. But what can I do? So I turn around, pick up a book from my bookshelf and it's that same childhood copy of White Fang. And I fall back in love again. And in White Fang, hair is actually mentioned quite a lot. White Fang uses his hair, it bristles to make him look bigger. His pelage, his fur coat, it's grey compared to his brothers and sisters who have red hair. So I'm reading this and the journalist instinct kicks in. Whoa, I've got to go and read more about this wolf, wolf hair. What's going on here? Did you know that wolves have guard hair? And it's what gives them the colour that they are. So black, brown, grey, red, white. But it's also quite oily. It's made up of these hollow shafts. And what it does is it protects the undercoat. And that's what also, protect, what also regulates the temperature of the wolf. Cool, right? Or should I say warm? <laughs> And I go back and I'm reading White Fang again and, you know, start looking at my androgenic hairs and it's, it's, wait, hold on a minute. So the wolves have hair for a reason and I have hair and when I'm cold, the hair rises and it traps the warmth. And when I'm afraid, 
the goosebumps make the hairs rise. So it's there to protect me. So the, so, so why am I destroying the hair? Why on earth am I attacking my own body? What is going on here? This is ridiculous. I mean, you've never seen a wolf try and shave and shedding its winter coat for temperature regulation purposes is not the same. <laughs> so the logic wins out. I mean, I'm gonna leave my arm hair alone. I'm fed up of the scars that keep coming back anyway. Nope, I'm done. And the thing is, people still do point out, oh, that's, that's a bit gross. And I'm like, I'm really sorry if it bothers you, but it doesn't bother me. It's a bit awkward, but then it passes. Unfortunately, society wins when it comes to the rest of my hair. My legs, if they're on show, then, I'll, you know, I'll probably shave. But it's because I don't want to be known at work as the woman with the hairy body. I want to be known for my substance. Hairy arms I can just about cope with. It's a shame, isn't it? But there comes a point, the pandemic happens. And like a lot of other people, I get sent home from work and the news agenda is relentless. Things keep changing minute after minute after minute. And I volunteer to sign up for a team, small team, and we focus on telling the stories of victim stories, of death stories, of sometimes survivor stories, behind the stats that the government keeps reeling out day after day after day as COVID spreads and spreads and spreads. And I'm at home in that same box room bedroom for 10 hours. I'll be calling people around the world, speaking to them about their loved ones lost unexpectedly, of obituaries and tributes, of stories of injustice and grief, of legacies, of lives very much full, but very much cut short. And it makes me think about my own life and the situation that I'm in and about where I wanna focus my energies on and letting go of needless, needless things. And like some other people, I stopped grooming. I mean, I still wash, I'm still clean. I still just about smell all right. But it's at first a little bit of an experiment. And I'll be honest, sometimes when I'm in the bath or I'm wearing shorts, even I'm a little bit grossed out, I have the ick because seeing that hair grow and grow and grow without knowing where the end point is, it's, it's, a, it's weird. It doesn't look feminine, it doesn't look right. But we're mainly on Zoom anyway, so nobody sees. and. At home, my family, they're like, do whatever you need to do. So there's no fear of embarrassment there. And it's at this point I learned that actually Asian hair grows much faster than our Caucasian counterparts. So it works out. Sometimes I sit and watch some films of animals and nature coming back and as people are going, reverting back in, in lockdown and I think maybe this is it. This is the inner wolf taking over. And also maybe this is where rumors of werewolves came about, you know, in plague days. <laughs> but there comes a point when I'm wearing this shortish skirt, just past up my knees, and it's got flowers on it and it's got pockets, I know. Um, it's, it's brilliant. And I look down at my knees because for some reason the hairs seem to congregate around the knees. They're really fascinating. They're long and tapered and soft, but they're really much around the knees. And I think, Shall I get changed? I want to go for this walk, you know, the, the, a vitamin D walk. Have a stretch. <laughs> I look up my hairy knees and I think, do you know what, I can't be bothered. Um, like, screw it, I'm gonna go. And if anyone says anything, they can say something. You know, I live in a pretty rough area. Um, and I 
put my keys and I put my money into my pocket. I open the door and head outside. And for the first time in many, many years, my hairy knees get to see the sun. And I go for a walk, only around the block, so about 10 or 20 minutes. And although it feels a little bit like a tickle, it feels really, really good. Thank you. That was Druti Shah. Druti Shah is an award-winning journalist and freelance wordsmith. She has been a local newspaper chief reporter, a BBC journalist, a social storytelling specialist, and a lot more. Her debut book, Bear Markets and Beyond, a bestiary term of business terms, won short business book of the year at the 2021 Business Book Awards. She's a trustee for the charity The John Showfield Trust and an advisor to the Museum of Color. The Story Collider is so grateful to Connie and Druti for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by Aaron Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Collider, along with me, managing producer Misha Gajewski, and senior podcast editor Jen Chen, and with help from education director Lily B. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including Managing Director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Science Advisory Fellow Edith Gonzalez, Education Director Lily B., and our Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were from shows produced by Kent Whipple and Emmy Okikawa and Richard Kemeny and Michaela Agabiu, respectively. Our theme music is by Ghost, and next week we'll be back with more true personal stories about science. Until then, thanks for listening. Thank you.